We all make career mistakes, but some of them are avoidable. On this episode, my guest Lois Franco brings us her wisdom from supporting the success of professional women and teaches us the unconscious mistakes women make to sabotage their careers. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 386. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader. You certainly have uh, considered the as- all the aspects of leadership in the workplace. And uh, one of the aspects of leadership that is something that comes up regularly in the emails I receive is what are some of the unique things that women face in leadership. And we have talked a bit about this before on the show. And today, I am really glad to welcome an expert who has really done some tremendous thinking of helping women to be successful at work, and uh, just as importantly, helping all of us to think about gender in ways that are helpful, practical, but also in helping both men and women be more successful in their work. I am thrilled to be able to welcome Lois Frankel to the show today. Lois is the president of Corporate Coaching International. She's a best-selling author, executive coach, and an internationally recognized expert in the field of leadership development for women. She has appeared on Larry King Live, The Tavis Smiley Show, The Today Show, CNBC, and PBS to discuss her New York Times bestselling books, Nice Girls Don't Get the Corner Office, Nice Girls Don't Get Rich, and Nice Girls Just Don't Get It. She has served some of the top organizations in the world, including the Walt Disney Company, the World Bank, Lockheed Martin, Ernst & Young, and many, many more. She's also supported many nonprofit organizations and founded two of them, most motivating our students through experience and Bloom Again Foundation, sowing seeds of health and hope. Lois, I'm so glad to welcome you to the show. Thank you so much for inviting me to be on. I'm I'm really thrilled and looking forward to it. Oh, the pleasure is mine. And as I was reviewing your work, there's so many things that came up, Lois. The thing that I'm realizing that did not come up is discovering how you got involved in this work initially. And I, I am curious, what prompted your interest and your passion in this work for women? Well, you know, it's really very interesting. And so I have to tell just a quick story. I worked at Arco, the oil company and human resources for many years. And I worked in human resources. And while I was there, I was working on my PhD because I always wanted to be a psychologist. So I get my PhD. I quit my job. I open up a private practice of psychotherapy. And I realize I don't like it. And after all these years, it was like, oh my God, what did I do? I quit a great job. This isn't cut out for me. Right around the same time, coaching started coming on the scene, business coaching. And I had a woman that I had done some training for call me and say, Lois, would you coach someone for me? And I said, I don't know what that is. And she said, Mm -hmm. you know, you've been a therapist, you've worked in human resources, you've done training, you put them all together, you have a coach. Now, I had no idea what it was, but I said, sure, I'd love to coach someone for you. And it really changed my life because it put together everything that I'd done in my history. And so then when I coached women, I was noticing 
some consistent mistakes they were making and they were mistakes they were making because of how they were raised. And this is where the psychology came in for me because I could see it from a different lens. It wasn't just a behavioral mistake to me. It was an ingrained behavior that served a purpose. And so really the book came about after a coaching session I had with a woman and she had said, before we get our session started, I want to tell you that I, I was invited to sit on the executive committee of my company. And I went to give her a high five and she stopped me. And I said, what? And she said, I've been to those meetings. They're a waste of time. And what popped out of my mouth was, honey, you got to quit being a girl. Because we all know that those meetings, they can be a waste of time. And as I said to her, they're called meetings. They're not called workings. You get invited to sit on the executive committee of your company, especially after you got sent for coaching because people felt you were a little rough around the edges. You go to those meetings. And so on the way home, I outlined all of what became Nice Girls Don't Get the Corner Office because I just kept thinking about all the mistakes women make because of how they're socialized. As I was reading the book, I saw so many themes come up and so many things I've also seen in working with women over the years. And the first thing that came up for me reading your work is the phrase itself, nice girls. It shows up in the title of your books. Where is the niceness coming from? And how does this show up in the workplace? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because boys and girls are socialized differently. And I know things are changing. So I'm not going to say that this, you know, you can't paint everybody with the same brush. But I can tell you in certain cultures, certain religions, we, we still see the same things over and over that we have seen in the United States forever. And that is, it's like the phrase, sugar and spice and everything nice. That's what little girls are made from, right? But what a little boy's made from. Yeah. Something in snails and puppy dogs' tails, which is very different. So women are partly socialized, but also I think some of it is just more biological. This desire to be of help, to be kind, to be collaborative. You put together nature and nurture. And in women, we don't see the same thing that we have in men as they were socialized to be more aggressive to not let anybody take advantage of you. That if somebody engages you in a fight, you be the winner of that fight. That serves young men well throughout their lifetimes and at, in the workplace. But the messages that girls get about being helpful and kind and nice and sweet and you're not pretty when you don't smile, those kinds of things. And, and to this day, in think about Madison Avenue and to certain degrees with some religions still teach women, um, when we see that, those don't serve women as well in the workplace if that's all they rely on. Mm. And I really want to stress that if that's what they rely on, because quite frankly, nice girls don't get the corner office wasn't my title for the book. It wasn't my choice. My choice was exactly what I said to my client, quit being a girl, hmm. because I felt like that was more descriptive. Quit being a little girl and become an adult woman. But as soon as you throw the nice in there, I can't tell you how many people say to me, I didn't buy your book because I thought you were going to espouse you have to be mean and nasty to be successful. And nothing could be further from the truth. All the book title suggests is you can't be the nice little girl you were taught to be in childhood and expect to achieve your adult goals. But everybody has to be nice. 
right? There's a niceness factor that goes along with success and leadership. But as a standalone, it doesn't work. You have to build complementary behaviors like finding your voice, being direct and to the point, being willing to say difficult things, and so forth. One of the things you say in the book is nice is necessary for success. It's simply not sufficient. So it's incumbent upon all of us, women perhaps especially, to make that transition. I don't know if forward's the right word, <laughs> but go beyond nice, right? Yes. And it's it's actually not just women. In certain cultures, men have the same issue. For example, GE hired me soon after the book came out to speak with their Asian American network because they felt that Asian men were doing the same things I was talking about in the book for women. And I've done quite a bit of work in Asia, Indonesia specifically. And that's why they bring me over, is to help those Indonesian leaders, both men and women, to be able to find their voices. Because if you know anything about the, especially the Indonesian culture, these are the nicest people. And so when it comes to leadership, they need to add new behaviors if they're going to be successful. One of the things, the distinctions you make in the book is the distinction between the workplace being a game and an event. And I'll, I'll read one of the passages you wrote. You say the workplace is a game. It has rules, boundaries, strategies, winners, and losers. Women tend to approach work more like an event, a picnic, a concert, a fundraiser, where everyone comes together for the day to play together nicely. In our desire to create win-win situations, we unknowingly create win-lose ones where we're the losers. Playing the game of business doesn't mean you're out to cause others to fail, but it is competitive. It means you're aware of the rules and develop strategies for making them work to your advantage. Tell me more about this distinction. Yeah, until recently, men have had much more experience with competitive sports. I know that that's changing now as young women and girls are playing more competitive sports. But they, they've had much more experience in competitive sports. You know, and there's, I know this is going to sound kind of odd, but there's just the testosterone factor, right? Which adds to, to some aggression. And so men understand that the workplace is a playing field where there are rules, boundaries, strategies, and the game is played to be won. And so a lot of times for women, what happens is that when they see that there's a competition that started, they back off. And a lot of times, this is why we don't see them rising as quickly as men do, because they are holding themselves back. Now, I am not here suggesting we blame the victim here, not at all. But I am saying that I think for some women, they need to take a look at, are they competitive enough? Now, there's an interesting story that appeared in the newspaper a few years ago, and it was about two teams, uh, women's softball teams, college teams. And on one of the teams, a young woman, it was her la very last game playing in college because she was graduating. And she gets up to bat and she hits what would be a home run, right? And it was the first one of her career. And she starts running and she pulls a muscle. She can't run. And everybody's going, this is her last game. She'd be able to get a home run. What does the other team do? The other team picks her up and carries her around the bases so she could have the home run. Hmm. Now, you would never see that in men's sports. I don't think you'd ever see that. It's a good example of how women want to be collaborative. They want to create win-wins. And I think that's important. But it's also important to know that 
you have to play your game at the edge of the field. That's where games are won. And if you want it, and every field is different. That's the other thing. You know, you could be working at Walt Disney Studios and then go to Northrop Grumman and find, gee, the rules for creativity are much different. I can't get away with, at Northrop Grumman, what I could get away with at Disney. And so you need to know that they change from field to field, from boss to boss, from men to women, people of color and Caucasians, but games are one at the edge. So you need to look at someone who looks like you and say, who, who are the winners on this field and what are they doing and what can I add to my repertoire of skills that looks like that? And for many women, that puts them out of their comfort zone. I think too many women, I'm not saying all women, too many women don't get this notion of playing to win. And there's enough winning to go around. You can win and other people can too. And that's what I want both women and men to really see. Because you win doesn't mean someone else loses. There's enough to go around for everyone. When you're coaching a woman who is perhaps struggling a bit with that, what is it that you find helps them to start to make that shift to play a little bit more at the edges? Yeah, is to have them understand that sometimes it's the, the, the smallest change in behavior can have ripple effects. So for example, I'll say to a woman, look, between this session and our next one, I want you to be the second person to speak in every meeting. Okay, I don't want you to wait till the end. I don't want you to be the first. I want you to be the second or I want you to be the third. And I want you to speak up and you don't have to always give an opinion. You can ask a question. You can affirm what someone else had to say. You can ask for clarity. But I want you to put your voice out at the table. Now, there's something small that as someone starts doing that, other behaviors start changing too. All of a sudden, she may start leaning in when she's talking. She may start speaking more loudly. Okay, She's going to notice that people are going to be paying more attention to her. They may be asking for her opinion more often. So that it's the smallest thing that can create ripples that have a really huge effect in the long run. I, I can't tell you how many people have written to me and said, I read your book and I just tried these three things and I either got the promotion I wanted, I got the raise I wanted, people noticed me. They got whatever they wanted because really the the corner office is just a metaphor for getting what you want at work. Yeah. Oh, and isn't it so amazing how often if we try to do something massive, make a massive change, uh, often it's it's very insurmountable or it's very incongruent with what we've been doing in the workplace, but those little shifts done consistently over time, it seems like we keep hearing again and again from the experts on the show, you included, Lois, that that is the starting point for changing our thinking, and then it starts to show up in lots of other places too. Oh, absolutely. And the whole thing is, for women, don't stop doing anything. Well, maybe there's one thing I know I write about in the book about stopping, because which I'll talk about in a second, but okay. in most cases... It's not about stopping anything. I'm not going to tell you to be less quiet, right? Because there's times when it's appropriate to be quiet, you know? So I'm not going to suggest that. I am going to suggest you need to identify those times and places where speaking up is really going to work on your behalf. And it's, they're part of the rules and the strategies that you use to win the game. So it's not about stopping or doing anything less. It's always about doing something more. Because as you do something more, 
something less naturally happens. If you speak up more, you are less quiet, mm. right? And so just going back, because I didn't want to be a tease about this. There's one thing that I do say you have to stop. And that's about bringing food to work. That is the one that <laughs> jumped out to me too, because I had never thought about it, Lois. But now reading that chapter, I thought to myself, wow, it's so true. And I, I grabbed one of the things you said about this. Let me see if I can find it here. Here's what you say in the book. We don't ascribe a sense of impact or importance to people who feed others. Sad as it is, it's true. And it may seem like a smaller inconsequential thing, but the fact is you rarely see food on men's desks. Men don't bring in leftovers from dinner the night before and share it with coworkers. Tell me more about this. You, you mentioned this is a stop doing. Yeah, it's like, you know, I talk about in the chapter, unless your name is Betty Crocker, don't have food on your desk, right? <laughs> don't bring in cookies and so forth. Because I did notice that the people who had food on their desk, whether it was candy or things like that, were the ones who did tend to be more friendly and chatty and, and all that's good. I mean, all that's positive. It has a place. But the problem is you need to think of yourself as a brand in the workplace, right? We're all brands. And what will your brand say about you and particularly about your leadership behavior? And so if you're always bringing food in, it says you're a nurturer, which that can be great. But the people who get away with it are the people who also have very strong leadership behaviors in their repertoires. You've got, if you're going to do it, you've got to have both. You can't just have one. And that's actually what all 130 mistakes are, is that it's not as if any one of them is a deal buster, but as you put some of them together, again, they define your brand and you want to be more conscious about how are you defining your brand? Is your brand getting you what you want, whether it's a corner office, as I said, a raise, a perk, a particular assignment, respect, whatever you want is within your reach. And you have to be strategic about getting it. One of the other things that came up for me reading this was something I had not thought about before. And you make the point in the book, women often project onto men characteristics associated with the men in their families. Mm -hmm. I'm really curious about this because I hadn't thought about that before. Yeah, I've seen it happen in two ways. One was, and it's the opposite of what you usually see, and it's the opposite of what I usually saw. I was coaching a woman who had a boss that was so mean to her and didn't listen to her and didn't respect her, and she was as mad as could be. And she said, this is just not right. You know, and she went on and on and on. And when we explored it, she had a dad that was so supportive of her, she could do no wrong. And so I'm not sure whether the boss really was as bad as she said he was, but assuming that he could have even been half as bad, she was projecting onto the boss feelings she had about how a man should be treating her, which was with total respect, with trust, with encouragement, with, you know, and we needed to work around the fact that, wait a minute, not all bosses are going to be that way. Right? I'm not saying it gives anybody a right to disrespect you, and you can deal with that. But this thing about anger over it and where she was, she was immobilized by it. It was beyond anger. She was immobilized by it. And I said, you know, you need to understand that there are people like your dad in the world. And yeah, hopefully you're going to get more of those as bosses. But for right now, you have, do have someone who's critical. 
And so you're going to have to interact with him differently. So that's one end of the spectrum. More often, what I hear women say is that they get immobilized because people treat them like they were treated badly in their lives. And so they're immobilized. And the example I have there is a woman I was coaching who had a brother who would treat her mercilessly, just tease her mercilessly. And she was the executive director of a fairly large nonprofit. And so her board of directors was all men. And she was great at being the executive director of this nonprofit. She was great with her direct reports. But with this board of directors, she was immobilized because she was projecting onto them the feelings that she had when she was around her brother about being powerless. Mm. And so we needed to work around that about how she could take her power back. So that's what I'm saying, that we can't confuse other people in the workplace with relationships we've had in the past, whether it was a mother, a father, a, it could be a primary caregiver, whoever. We need to see people for who they are. And we need to interact with them based as the adult we are, asking for what we need, and, and also, when appropriate, not tolerating behavior that puts you down. We can't possibly have this conversation and not say something about money. And one of the quotes that really came up for me was when you wrote, I spoke with women and asked them what kept them from being rich. Almost to a woman, they responded that they didn't need to be rich. They only wanted to be comfortable. Money is power, and power is something women misinterpret and avoid. Ask a woman if she's powerful, and she'll give you five reasons why she's not. How does money show up in this? Yeah, money shows up in terms of our ability to accumulate it, believe we deserve it, raises pay. What we know about women and money, particularly about pay, is that two people can graduate from college and come into the same workplace and be paid the same amount. And within two or three years, the man is earning anywhere between 10 and 15% more than the woman. And part of that is because she's not negotiating well enough for her raises. She's not calling attention to her achievements. She's not going for promotions that would give her more money because she feels as if she hasn't deserved it or earned it yet. And it's important for women to understand that money is power. That money enables you to do the things that you want to do without restriction. And that really was the topic of my next book, which was Nice Girls Don't Get Rich. And in Nice Girls Don't Get Rich, I talk about being rich is simply having all the money you need to live your life the way you want, free from concerns about money. And when you have that, then you have what you need to make different choices. I have a colleague by the name of Liz Weston. Many people know her from the column she writes, Ask Liz. And what she says is that we all need to have forget about you money, F-U money, forget about you money. <laughs> if you don't have forget about you money, then you are stuck, okay? Then, then when you aren't treated fairly, when you do believe that you deserve more, you can't go anywhere because you don't have that. And it, not having money and not having wealth. And again, wealth is only described as having all the money you need to live your life the way you want, free from concerns about money. When you don't have that, you are making decisions that aren't always in your best interest. You stay in relationships longer than you should. You know, you do all kinds of things that are counter 
to what you should be doing for yourself. I think I can say every time I get an email from someone with asking for advice on salary negotiation, it's an email from a woman. And I guess there's a lot of ways to read that. But it is interesting to me that this is something that I think many women recognize, at least in our listening community, recognize it's something that they may not be as good at and are looking for advice, knowing that this is a challenge for a lot of women and in a lot of organizations. And I guess I'm I'm curious too, when you get those messages, what's a starting point for a woman who's going into a situation, especially where there is a formal negotiation coming up or there's an, there's an obvious time to make an ask or make a request? Where should she start? Is there a, a book or a process or just, or just a, a thought process that you encourage people to, to begin exploring? Yes. As a matter of fact, recent research has shown that women need to negotiate differently than men. Women have, have always said this. They've always felt it intuitively that when they negotiate like a man, they're seen as too greedy or they're seen as pushy and so forth. So women need to focus more on the relationship when negotiating because women often see negotiation as confrontation. They have a little bit of a harder time with it when it comes to negotiating for themselves. Women are great about negotiating for other people. I always say, do not get in the way of a woman who's negotiating to get her child into a preschool okay? <laughs> because you know she's just going to be a tiger mom there. But when it comes to herself, she doesn't always. So the first step in any negotiation is to do your research, is to find out what is the going rate for whatever it is. And we'll just use salary here in this example. What's the going rate in your city for someone with your experience, your education, What's the range? So you have to go in with facts and be prepared with that. The second thing is to, again, go in focused on the relationship. Dave, if you were interviewing me for a job or you offered me a job, I might come to you and say something like, you know, Dave, I appreciate that you offered me $80,000 for this job. It's very generous of you. At the same time, I don't think you'd respect me if I didn't come back and say, my research shows the job pays between eighty dollars and $105,000. And starting me at $80,000 when I have so much experience really is not consistent with how we would start a great relationship. And I want to come in here delighted to work for you. Mm. Oh, that's nice. You, you, yeah, you can hear how I'm focused on the relationship. I think Sheryl Sandberg, when she was negotiating for her job at Facebook, said something to Mark Zuckerberg like, this will be the only time we are on opposite sides of the table, Mark. And, you know, something like that. So, again, it's got to be about the relationship, again, using the data that you have and letting the person know what they're going to get out of it. I'm going to come in here delighted to work for you and be ready to hit the ground running and do more than you even ever thought I could do. Something like that. But that's doing it with confidence, you know? So much of your work is is aimed squarely at women and you have a lot of calls to action for women. And I am curious, how much do men own in this? When you talk to men, like many of the listeners in our audience, who are very supportive of women in the workplace, want to support women effectively, what do you tell them? What I tell them is that they need to have the courage to speak the unspoken. There's a great book, I wish I wrote it, and it's called The Male Factor. Okay, And it's by Shanti Feldhan. And in this book, Shanti Feldhan 
interviewed thousands of men and asked them what they really thought about working with women. And boy, it was an eye-opener, okay? Because men have lots of thoughts about women's behaviors, but they are hesitant to say them because they're afraid. They're afraid that they'll get called sexist. They're afraid that they'll say they're harassing them. Well, all leaders need to have a good relationship with followers. That's how they get to give feedback. And so assuming you have the kind of relationship that will withstand the feedback, men need to be more courageous about sitting down with women and saying, hey, look, you know, my only goal is to have you hit a home run every time you step up. And I've noticed two things that you're doing that I think is getting in your way. Could I have your permission to share it with you? Mm-hmm. Now, almost everybody's going to say yes. But when you put it that way, it doesn't sound like harassment. It sounds like I genuinely want to help you, right? Now, is there a risk involved in that? Sure. Because let's say the woman gets terminated eventually. She can always come back and say something like, oh, you know, it's because I was a woman. I was doing this or that. You know, I'd rather always err on the side of taking the high road than being afraid to, to say what needs to be said that could genuinely help someone. And I think if you do it in the spirit, that spirit, People take it in that spirit. So I'd like to see men giving women more feedback, assuming they have the relationship in place. And I think also encourage them to take opportunities. So for example, I know when I worked at Arco, I had a boss that would encourage me to speak in front of groups of executives. He wanted me to get comfortable doing that. Now, that's a gift. That's a gift that has given back to me time and again over the course of my career. So give women these gifts that encourage them to do this. Have coaching sessions with, you should be doing with women and men, but have coaching sessions, especially with women, where you really talk about the playing field. And this has been very helpful to men when I've told them this. You know, talk about the playing field, what it looks like at your workplace, how someone is maybe playing it too safe, how they're going out of bounds, how they could be more successful on the playing field. These are all things I'd like to see men doing more with women in order to ensure that there is more equity. One of the things that's coming up for me is the the distinction is, and I think maybe I'm remembering this from your book, Lois, if not, please correct me, is the distinction between mentorship and sponsorship. Of There's a lot of mentoring of women, but there isn't as much of what I hear you saying, and that is sponsorship of I am willing to engage and build a relationship and to really encourage a woman and to provide opportunities and, and to give feedback. Is that landing with you? Am I remembering that correctly? Yes, absolutely. Mentoring is really putting your arm around someone and not literally, obviously, but figuratively putting your arm around someone and showing them the ropes, right? And helping them see how are you going to succeed. But sponsorship is when you speak up on someone's behalf when they're not there or sponsoring opportunities for them. And, you know, it's also about saying things that others might not want to hear so that if a man is in a group of other men and they say, you know, something about a woman, being sponsorship is also about being willing to say, well, wait a minute, that's not really fair. She didn't have the same opportunities we had, mm-hmm. or that's not really fair. She was, she thought she was playing by the rules. So yes, being willing to be a mentor, but also being a sponsor. And being a mentor and being a sponsor is a little bit like the chicken and the pig. And they're both asked to bring something to breakfast. Who's more committed? The, the pig. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so we've got, I think, two calls to action coming out of this conversation for you. For those of you listening to this, men and women who have heard something and thought, wow, that was helpful, 
useful. There's a lot more in Lois's work that we are just scratching the surface on. So the first call to action for you is to check out the book, Nice Girls Don't Get the Corner Office. And one of the things I really like that you've done, Lois, is you've got the assessment at the beginning. So you can really customize the advice for yourself. It's almost like a a coach in a book a bit, just by going through the assessment and then going and looking at some of the direction you have around those different mistakes the areas you score lower on. The other call to action I have for you, and I'm going to link to this in our weekly leadership guide in the notes, is connecting with Lois on LinkedIn. Because Lois, you're doing a wonderful video series and it's working toward a new book that's coming out in the next year or two, right? That's absolutely correct. And the working title is The Nice Girl's Guide to Telling People to Go to Hell So They Look Forward to the Trip. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) And I'm doing this book and I started writing it and I realized this screams for audio. And so I switched to audio and I pitched it as an audio book to my publisher and they love the idea because the one thing I am asked consistently in keynotes and workshops is how can I say this or that? without get ca- being called the B word, right? Mm. That's what women want to know. And so it's not just about telling people off. It's about all kinds of communication. How can I communicate with courage and confidence and not be seen as someone who's strident or doesn't care about others? And so I post on Monday mornings short video clips of one of the tips that will be in the book. And so, yeah, I'd love to have people connect with me on LinkedIn. And I also post when I see interesting articles or research that I think would be of interest to women or sometimes just general workplace. I also post that as well. Well, I'd invite everyone to take the action to do that. I've been really enjoying the videos, Lois. You've got some wonderful tips that are super practical and also really quick. Lois Frankel is the author of Nice Girls, Don't Get the Corner Office and several other bestsellers. Lois, thank you so much for your time. It has been my pleasure, Dave. Thank you so much, Lois. Four additional episodes that may be of value to you if today's conversation was helpful. One of them is episode 172, How to Handle Workplace Bullying. My guest on that episode was Jill Morgenthaler. She talked about her experience of being one of the very early female colonels in the United States Army and some of the unfortunate situations that came along with that of moving into a culture that uh, was and still very much is dominated by male leadership and tells her story in detail in that episode. I think you'll find that useful if today's conversation was interesting to you. Also a value is episode 232, How to Manage Your Inner Critic. Tara Moore was my guest on that episode, talked about the work she's done with women over the years in listening to and handling that inner critic that so many of us hear, the voice in our head that says we are not capable, we're not good enough, and talks in detail in that episode about some of the very useful things all of us, men and women, can do in order to manage that more effectively. Also, related to that, episode 255, how women can make stronger Smarter Choices. My guest on that episode was Therese Houston, and uh, we talked about some of the decision-making process uh, women in particular can utilize in the workplace. Though I should mention, for both of those past two episodes, episode 232 and 255, I have had as many men, if not more men, over the years reach out to me about the value of those two episodes, not only in thinking about it from their own perspective, but also thinking about it in supporting 
the women that they have the privilege to influence in the workplace and to mentor and to sponsor, as we talked about in this conversation. So check out both of those if that's useful to you. And then finally, episode 275, How to Help the Underdog Thrive. Terry Lepofsky was my guest on that episode. He's an executive coach up in Canada. And we talked in detail about how he has developed a coaching practice over the years on really working with people that are in underdog situations for many different reasons. And so we talked about some of the ways that he helps people in the workplace who are the folks who are underrepresented in all kinds of different capacities in being able to be more influential, effective, drive their careers forward. Episode 275 will be helpful to you if that sounds interesting. All of those episodes are available on the Coaching for Leaders com website. The very best way to get access is just go over to coachingforleaders.com slash podcast. For those of you who have your free membership already set up, you will see a way to search by topic for all of the past episodes. Many of the episodes I mentioned are under the topic of inclusion, but there's tons of other topics listed there as well. If you have not yet set up your free membership, you'll want to do that when you get to that page. That'll give you full access to all of the past episodes since 2011. I'll also give you access to my free 10-day audio course titled 10 Ways to Empower the People You Lead. If you'll give me 10 minutes a day for 10 days, I'll help you to get the most immediate practical actions to become a better leader. It's some of the key lessons from the show since we began airing in 2011. Again, you can go over to coachingforleaders.com to get access to all of that. It also includes the weekly leadership guide, the member cast, my personal library that I mentioned on the last episode, and a ton more. So dive right in, have at it. Lots of resources there for you and uh, many more coming in the future. Uh, next week, I am glad to welcome Corinne Armour to the show. She is going to be showing us how to get people to stop coming back to you with the same problems. <laughs> it's a challenge many of us face in leadership is uh, we help someone out with something and then they come back to us next week with the same issue. And then the week after that with a fairly closely related issue. One of the things we'll talk about next week is how do we prevent a bit of that? And more importantly, how do we develop people to help them to be able to solve problems on their own? Join us next week for that conversation. Have a fabulous week, and I look forward to seeing you online. In the meantime, take care. Take care.